Good morning, Bethel. Well, like I mentioned last week, if you were here, um, typically we participate in the Lord's table on the first Sunday of the month. Um, no, you know, rule along those lines, but just in um, studying Luke as we've been walking through Luke, it just worked really well to push it ahead of week so that we could participate in the Lord's table on the morning that we work through the beginning of Luke 22, which is the Last Supper. Um, and so that's why we're participating in communion uh, this Sunday. So as I direct your thoughts in that um, direction, I want you to think about a simple question, um, but maybe a convicting question. If we stopped serving communion, what difference would it make in your life? Would you notice any loss? Do you ever get hungry for this meal? Or do you more often eat it out of duty? I don't know about you, but I hardly ever eat out of duty. I love to eat. I usually want to maximize my culinary experiences. Needing to eat out of duty almost always means there's something wrong. Like when you're sick, kind of dampens your appetite, doesn't it? Or if you're deeply grieved, sometimes you don't feel like eating. And sometimes you need to eat nonetheless, and it does you good. But when you're healthy, you get hungry, especially if you're active enough and your metabolism is working through that fuel and asking for more. <clears throat> so we are going to participate in the Lord's table later, um, but also our text is very much all about the Lord's table as it's on the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples. Um, so why don't we pray, and then we'll dive in to Luke 22. Father, thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you for the realities that we have just sung about. If we are in Christ, those things are true and they are wonderful and sweet and glorious. And we pray that you would cause us this morning and regularly to taste and see that you are good. Ever since the fall, our taste buds are out of whack and we so often get hungry for all the wrong things. And we are dulled to what we ought to desire. And we thank you that when your grace meets our calloused hearts, you make us new and you give us new desires and new spiritual taste buds. And yet, Lord, it's so easy for for us to continue to become dull, to buy the lies of the evil one who loves to bait his hooks and cover 
the hooks with tempting but deceitful bait. So we thank you that you sent your son, and we thank you that he said things like, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never, ever hunger, and whoever believes in me will never, ever thirst. And that's true when we come for the first time and we need to keep coming. And we pray that you would awaken increased appetite for you to know you, to commune with you relationally, intimately, experientially, truly, authentically. Put us out of taste for the things that so often compete for our heart's affection and our loves and our desires and our dreams and our ambitions and our aspirations. I pray that you would be the food of our souls. So Lord, this morning, would you please shepherd us, shepherd your sheep by means of your word. Would you please Give us an experience of the fact that if you are our shepherd, we shall not be in want. Cause your sheep to be led to and to lie down in green pastures. That they would be, that we would be refreshed and fed and satisfied. Lead us to quiet waters, waters that are slow enough that we can drink from them and be refreshed. Lord, lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Make us to know that you are with us, shepherding us, even if we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I pray that you would also show us that you are not only shepherd, but you are also our host. And you can prepare a table before us, even in the presence of our enemies. And even in the midst of threat of any kind, you can anoint our heads with oil and our cup can overflow. Would you please cause us to experience that this morning as we feed on your word and as we feed on Christ, the bread of life, the one from whom the living waters flow. Do it, Lord, for your for your great namesake and for the good of your people. Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you can turn in your Bibles, you'll find our passage for this morning on page 1051 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. And we will read this section in pieces as we walk down through it. There's also um, an outline in the bulletin, if that's helpful for you, to follow along that way. Looks like this. So first, we're just going to read the first verse and, and catch a little bit of 
context in a big picture sort of way as we step back from the Bible and see what, what kind of associations would be in the minds of the disciples and the early readers when they heard that it was Passover. So verse 1, Luke writes, Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. Hey, originally, as Jay read from Exodus 12, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover were two separate feasts, but they were back to back. So long before even Jesus' time, they had, in a sense, merged together. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread began a day after the Passover, and it lasted for a week. Okay, so that's why you have this statement, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover because they, they were taken together because thematically they're linked and chronologically they were linked as well. It was the springtime, and being that the Passover was one of the three main pilgrim feasts for Jews, a huge number of Jews would have flocked to Jerusalem in order to celebrate this feast. Okay? I mean, it's hard to know for sure as we look at some of the historical documents that are available from the time because there's some discrepancies um, and maybe some exaggerations as well how many Jews actually made their way up to Jerusalem at these times. But the conservative side would be 100,000. And it could be upwards of four or 500,000 people flooding into Jerusalem during these main pilgrim feasts. Now, keep in mind, keep that in mind as you think of what the Passover is all about. It celebrated the deliverance of God's people from their bondage to slavery in Egypt, right, under Pharaoh. So it was all about release from oppression. And it was all about their national identity. They were the Lord's people, Yahweh's people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Over and over again when he's when he's speaking to his people after the Exodus, remember, I'm the Lord your God. You're my people. It's an identity issue, okay? So if you asked Israelites, who are you? The meaning of the Passover answered that question, okay? We'll consider that identity issue a little bit more later. <clears throat> and, you know, also these Jews, they were fairly excitable people. They could be very zealous about their religion, not I mean, obviously evidenced by the fact that some of the disciples thought they should carry swords, okay? They held pretty strong hopes that their deliverer was going to come and free them from being under the thumb of Rome. So there's dramatic tension that's building and building as Jesus continues to lead us, and he's leading us into Jerusalem. At the time of this festival, there's tons of Jews flooding in to Jerusalem from the surrounding areas. And this is all about their national identity, and it's all about in a sense, revolution. So you can imagine that the Romans might be a little bit, you know, edgy at these times. Little history on the Passover feast and celebration. This might be review for some of you. That's okay. We all need to review these things. So remember, the Israelites were poor and oppressed by Pharaoh in Egypt. Remember the gospel that Jesus is coming to preach, Luke 4, is to the poor, released to the captives. Okay, they cried out to God back then. He raised up a deliverer to save them. Moses was the mediator. He was the deliverer. Pharaoh refused to let them go after those nine horrible plagues. The tenth plague was the plague of the death of all the firstborn. Okay, there's only one way to escape this horrible judgment. 
the blood of a spotless lamb must be daubed on the frame of the door. If you believed in Yahweh, you trusted his word, you would sacrifice the Passover lamb at the appropriate time and put the blood on the doorposts and the death angel would pass over sparing your firstborn. If you refuse to believe in or bow to Yahweh's word, your firstborn would be dead by morning. Pharaoh didn't believe. His heart was hard. And his precious firstborn was dead in the morning, along with many other, both humans and animals. So the feast that was commanded by God to be kept year by year celebrated this deliverance. The Passover lamb died in their place to rescue them from the angel of death. So notice that the Passover lamb is not just a symbol of deliverance. It's actually a means of deliverance. It meant freedom from slavery and freedom to serve Yahweh, okay, to be led by him through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, one other thing that we should note about the Passover um, is this, is that the meal itself was intentionally full of interpretation as they participated in it year after year. This will become really important later on, so don't, don't miss this. Just kind of take note of this. They didn't just eat the meal in silence. They didn't just eat it and happily talk about the weather or how tender and juicy, you know, the lamb chops were this year. Let me just give you a brief little window into one of these meals. I'm, I'm taking this mainly in summary form with some, some um, subtractions and additions from a commentary by Joel Green. What was one of these Passover meals like in the life of the Jews, you know, between the Exodus and the time of Jesus? First, the head of the family would take the first cup and he would bless it. Maybe you've heard this blessing before, familiar with this. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. Okay, so that first cup would be shared, and then it would be followed by bitter herbs to eat, dipped in sauce. And then there was a second cup that was readied, and when that cup was ready, the youngest son would ask... Some questions. Why is this night different from other nights? Why the unleavened bread? You know, why is that eaten on this night, etc., etc.? Okay. In reply, the head of the family would tell the story of the Exodus and give a brief little exposition of Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 11. Flip back there. You've got to see this. <clears throat> so the context in Deuteronomy 26 is when they come into the land that the Lord was going to give them as an inheritance, they were to take some of the first fruits from the ground, put it in a basket, bring it to offer before the Lord. When they do, here's what they're supposed to say. Deuteronomy 26, it's the fifth book in from the beginning. You shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. That's Jacob, who was named Israel. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, but there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we, listen to this. So this is afterwards. These people weren't really there. They're, they're saying it this way. We, national identity. We cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now behold, I've brought the first of the produce of the, of the ground, which you, O Lord, has give, have given me. 
and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you and the Levite and the alien or the, the stranger visiting um, the, the foreigner who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. Okay, so the meal is interpreted as a present act of remembrance and thanksgiving for God's past liberation. And if you are one of the people of God, you participate in that story. It's your story. It's a celebration of God's faithfulness leading you in the present Gratefulness to the past, leading you in the present to hope for the future deliverance of God's people as it's needed. Okay, so what they would do next, they would, they would sing a couple of um, either the first one or the first two psalms in the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 to 118. And then they would drink that second cup. Then the head of the family would take unleavened bread. He would break it or he would bless it, break it, hand it to everyone and the Passover meal would follow. Okay, so it was in the context of a meal. Then there were two more cups of wine that would follow along with the singing of the rest of the Hillel. Okay, and, and I read these, I guess it was this morning. Um, really sweet to read these in this context. I'd encourage you to do that later. To think Passover, celebrating God's deliverance, and singing Psalms 113 to 118. Very appropriate. So the meal is the story. The interpretation is the centerpiece. They wouldn't think of eating this meal without the interpretation. It would lose its meaning. So when you feed on this meal, you're supposed to be chewing on and drinking in its interpretation as you chew on and drink in the food and the wine. You are feeding again on past grace in the present as you feast on the meal. And you are doubly nourished physically, spiritually. Okay, our feast, the, the sad thing is we've kind of lost this connection. One, we don't really feast very much anymore in relation to some major event. But even when we do, sometimes the meaning's been sucked out from all of our important meals. So it's become all about the food rather than the food all about the story. Think about Thanksgiving. Now, we can fight against that, but that's an example of how it can happen. So we're way more focused on the food than on what's the point of this feast. So that's all important backdrop as we seek to understand the section. So let's now look at the conspiracy that's taking place. Verses 2 to 6. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put Jesus to death because they had to seek how to do this because they were afraid of the people. And there were just too many people around. It would start a riot. How are we going to do this? How, do, how are we going to get him off away from all these supporters so that we can get this done? And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Well, that made their job easier. An insider, a mole, a traitor, now they're going to be able to find a place and a time when he's away from his big entourage, crowd, disciples that are hanging on his words so they can put him to death. So they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented 
and began seeking an opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. See it? They were afraid of the people. He has to do it apart from the crowd. Now, lest we think that Jesus was a victim of this conspiracy, let's look quickly at how this section concludes. So flip on ahead to verse 21, the end of our section, verses 21 to 23. At the end of the meal, Jesus says, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So how about that for holding together the sovereignty of God and the guilt and responsibility of man in this horrible betrayal. Jesus knows he is being betrayed and he knows who is going to betray him. And he pronounces a woe on that man. And yet he makes it clear that he is in control. God is in control. Things are not unraveling or spinning out of control. Jesus was not going to die until he was good and ready until his hour, the hour had come. So John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Or in Luke's sequel in Acts, Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter two, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, listen, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you're guilty. Both, just like Judas. So with Jesus firmly in control, he sends Peter and John to make the preparations. Look at verses 7 to 13. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Okay, there's language of divine necessity in the book of Luke that we've looked at before. The Son of Man has to suffer and be betrayed and killed and he'll rise again. So the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so you see those themes weaving together here. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where? Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, which was out of the ordinary. Okay, women usually were the ones carrying water jars. They would would carry the pitchers. Men would actually typically carry skins of water. Okay, so that's out of the ordinary. Follow him into the house that he enters. You shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. Jesus in control. And they prepared the Passover. Remember, these guys are from Galilee. Okay, so Jerusalem's down here. Galilee's up here. Like in a car today, it takes like two and a half, three hours to drive that. So they've been to Jerusalem before, but it's not their backyard, their stomping grounds. Where do you want us to prepare this? There's a lot of people in the city. How are we going to do this? So Jesus is in control. He's planned everything, and they find it just as he had told them. Now on to the meal itself, verses 14 to 20. When the hour had come, 
He reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Um, we just pause really briefly here. Again, this is the meaning of Passover. You remember how people gathered by family to celebrate the Passover in that passage that Jay read? Jesus gathers with his family. Save Judas who betrayed him. He's gathering with his family to celebrate the Passover. Remember back in Matthew 12, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And he stretches out his hand toward all his disciples and he says, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who's in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So this is why we say things like this meal that we're going to participate in is for believers. It's for followers of Jesus. It's for the family of God. It's a family meal. It's not the way you get into the family as if there's magic in the cracker and the juice. Okay? But you enter by the grace of God as you repent and believe you are adopted into this family. So here Jesus, even this early, is meaningfully meeting and having this meal with his family because he's making a new people. So he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Really strong language. It's the same word that's used for lust in other places, okay? And it's repeated. It's for emphasis. They didn't have bold face in word back then, okay? I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup, now notice there's going to be two cups referenced here. That could be confusing. I thought there was just the cup and the bread. But remember the Passover meal, there's four cups. Okay, so this is the first cup, most likely. When he had taken a cup, given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So do you see that line that's repeated? This, I won't eat or drink until it's fulfilled. That must be pretty important because it's repeated. Why does Jesus want so badly to eat this meal? I think we should be asking that question. We'll consider it in a minute. So verse 19, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, here's where we start to pull some of the background together with what's happening here and what it means for us. Remember how I said that interpretation was vital to the Passover meal. So here, Jesus with his disciples, he's giving interpretation at each point in the meal. Do you see it there? So we, as we come to this table, we need to know what it means so that we feed on the right things as we feed on the wafer and the juice. So what's the interpretation? Well, on your little outline there, you see there's point A and B. We need to look back. We need to look forward. We're going to kind of unpack it that way. So first, we need to look back. We need to look back as we participate in the table of our Lord. Verses 19 and 20. We just read them. Okay? So he breaks the bread. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes the cup. This cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. 
So in the Passover meal, Jews, what did they do? They looked back on, reminded themselves of, and it was driven deep down in their souls by repetition. They looked back on the merciful, powerful deliverance that was worked on their behalf. And that deliverance had everything to do with who they were, their identity. So for us, this meal is a regular reminder, and we need this reminder regularly. We need to look back to the cross, the deliverance that was worked for us on our behalf by Jesus at the cross, his body broken, his blood shed, I I don't even know if we realize how much we need these reminders. Do you always act as if your primary identity is redeemed, forgiven, cleansed, adopted, loved child of the Father? If so, you, you would probably respond to Losing a verbal sparring match in, at work makes you look stupid and you have to wear egg on your face and then you're all insecure for like the next two weeks. Sometimes we're trying to establish our identity by our image, labors, work ethic, whatever it is, and we can be driven, driven, driven by all the wrong things trying to establish who we are because we don't know who we are. We're not secure. We're so insecure and... and Our insecurity gets kicked up in different ways, and so we try to push it down. We try to put up walls of of image and reputation and, and performance and so forth so that no one will see how shaky the core is, how fragile it is. But what if we actually believed and acted as if our primary identity, who are you? Let me tell you what God has done for me. Redeemed, forgiven, cleansed, adopted. I am a child of the Father. There's nothing that can separate me from his love. If he has justified me, who can condemn? Tie it in with what Lori was sharing as far as this body image thing. How much insecurity is present around that? Because we wish we were identity someone else. See, we're so prone to wander. We can be paralyzed by failure and shame and guilt. We need to know over and over and over and get it driven deep down into our souls that it is finished. It's really finished. We need to be reminded with broken bread and the blood of the vine. We need to taste and feel and know that the deliverance was one past tense, solidly. This is not a dream. This is not wishful thinking. You can bank your life on this. You can turn the page from your past sin and failures. You don't have to be plagued by guilt. You don't have to be driven by failure. I can't let that happen again. You can believe the blood. You can let go in other cases, of grudges and bitterness. You're not primarily identified by what has been done to you. Some people take on victim mentality as their identity. When they think that this self-pity is going to actually salve their soul and really they're slaves. 
You can be washed and freed by the blood. And you can forgive other people because of Jesus' sacrifice, redeeming you, rescuing you, delivering you from that slavery. So our identity doesn't have to be wrapped up in what we have done, whether that's positive or negative. Sometimes we, we our successes, we, we wrap our identity, we hang our hat on that. Sometimes it's our failures, and then we just don't know who we are or what has been done to you, whether it's abuse or you feel like you've been slighted or whatever it is. You don't have to be, you don't have to be a slave and identified, this is who I am. You can be identified by what Jesus has done for you and who you are in him. That is one of the reminders of the table because this table has everything to do with the people of God, who they are by grace because of the cross, identity. We've been redeemed by a mighty act of deliverance. And so despite our sin, despite our coldness, so often our stupidity, our proneness to wander, our failures this past week or month. I, I listened to this little clip this morning. Um, so encouraging. This Matt Chandler, this pastor, he says, Jesus doesn't regret saving you. He doesn't regret going to the cross for you despite our thick-headedness and our slowness to learn and our proneness to wander. He doesn't regret it. It's finished. We need to come back here and feed on those realities, on that interpretation as it goes down, giving thanks. So we need to look back and listen to Jesus' interpretation and look back and remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. All those promises of the new covenant are true for us because of Jesus. He died to give us new hearts to forgive us and cleanse us. Okay? So we, this morning as we participate, let's look back and be nourished on grace at the cross. Then we need to look forward also. And there's more grace, more food for our souls. Okay? Jesus says that he's not going to eat until this meal is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says it once in verse 15 and 16. He says it again in verse 18. So why did Jesus desire so strongly to eat this meal? And what's the nature of our looking forward? Okay, I think as far as the reason for this earnest desire, I think that for Jesus, this last Passover meal, this last supper with his disciples was a reminder even for him. Or maybe we should say it was a foretaste for Jesus of why he was doing what he's doing. A foretaste of the fact that, he was a, that all that he was about to suffer was worth it. That one day, the feast, when it would be fulfilled, would begin. In the words of Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So the meal was a foretaste of the joy to come when he would once again be able to participate in this meal in the kingdom in, in its fullness. So this meal says, it reminds us that there is a feast to come. Okay, we live, I don't think this is news to anyone, but we live in a fallen world. It's hard 
in this fallen world. There's brokenness in us that drives us nuts. There's brokenness all around us that breaks us up, breaks our hearts. There's evil in us, and we hate it. There's evil around us. We groan. We long for renewal. And this meal says, one day it's going to come. Jesus will come again and set the world to rights, and all things will be made new. This meal is a foretaste. It's a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Listen to Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you need a foretaste of that meal? I need a foretaste of that meal. You know why? Because this world can feel so much like a desert What if the things that you typically take joy in are taken away? Where does the satisfaction come from? Where, does you, where do you go to get your thirst slaked? When you're walking through what feels like a wilderness, guess what? This meal is like manna from heaven. How is manna described as far as its taste? Coriander seed. Okay, set that aside. Honey. It was like honey. You know why? Because they were on their way to the promised land that flowed with milk and... It's really easy to doubt that God is with you and that he's for you when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. When you're going through a desert and it just seems like all you have is sand. It's really easy to doubt. Your soul is parched. This, this is crazy. It's so encouraging and helpful. In Psalm 78, the psalmist is kind of recounting the history of Israel, and he throws this line in there as far as what the people in the desert said. Psalm 78, 19, then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? They doubted. They grumbled. They complained. They didn't trust him. But guess what? A little ways back, back in Psalm 23, oh yeah, he can prepare a table even in the presence of your enemies. Your cup can overflow. Not when everything is happy and, you know, rose-colored glasses and all of this. No, there's enemies. Valley of shadow of death. But your cup is overflowing. And you're like a a well-watered sheep, well-fed sheep, green pastures. Do you need this reminder? Like we need to come to taste the foretaste that we need. This meal is saying to us, it's coming. Hang in there. Hold on. Endure through the wilderness and route to the promised land. It's worth it. You are never going to be fully satisfied in this wilderness world. You will suffer and struggle. 
In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And the true feast for which your soul longs, every good thing on this earth is just a little tiny foretaste. It's not the real thing. So if we let our affection terminate on that thing, we'll never be satisfied. We'll just try to get a little more, a little more. That's where addiction comes from. All those things are supposed to help you realize that what you've always longed for is the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what you're really hungry for. And it's coming. It's coming. So this meal is supposed to help us smell these promises wafting in to the wilderness from heaven's kitchens, from the new heavens and the new earth kitchens. Okay, just close your eyes and listen to this promise. Savor this. I hope that the mouth of our soul starts to water. Isaiah 25, just close your eyes. Listen to this. This is so sweet. You have been a defense for the helpless, O Lord, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall, like heat in drought. You subdue the uproar of aliens, foreigners, like heat by the shadow of a cloud. The song of the ruthless is silenced. And then this, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. We need to hunger for that feast. So the first exodus from Egypt and the Passover meal is like a little sneak preview. The second exodus... Jesus' deliverance from sin, not just from slavery under a cruel Pharaoh. The second exodus is what we celebrate today. And yet that second exodus hasn't fully been fulfilled yet. We're out of Egypt, but we are in the wilderness and the promised land is coming. And it feels like a wilderness oftentimes en route. So this new Passover, this Lord's Supper, finds its fulfillment when we enter the promised land. So of course Jesus is looking forward to eating it again. So the day is coming. Jesus is going to eat and drink this special meal again. And if you are in Christ, you and I will be seated there. Just stop and think about it. You're going to be seated there. Are you, are you ready for how you're going to feel when you sit at this table at the wedding feast of the Lamb? As I started to think about it, it's like you're just going to be giddy and, and trembling and overwhelmed. Knowing better than ever how utterly unworthy you are to be there. I can't even, I can't, 
I made it, not because of anything in me. You kept me. You kept me through the wilderness. So often I would have wandered off and gotten eaten alive. You kept me, and here I am, and here you are, and it's, it's here. And you are going to know that Romans 8.18 is true. You're finally going to really know it and, and not ever, even in the slightest, doubt it that Paul says, I don't consider the sufferings of this present time worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You're going to sit there and you're going to say, amen to that. What was I thinking? You doubt it now. I doubt it now. We don't resonate with it now. But you will, and this meal is testimony to that. You should feed on that today. You will. With all your crazy heart, you will be satisfied that day. And that satisfaction can trickle back into the wilderness and feed our hopes and keep us persevering until the end. And just like there was interpretation at the Passover, at the Lord's Supper, there was interpretation. There will be interpretation that we will sing. We will join in this interpretation as we sing for all eternity the new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made us to be a kingdom and priests to you, our God, and we will reign upon the earth. John says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray and then we'll participate. Feed us, Lord. Feed us with gospel, grace, and truth. Where there is dullness, awaken hunger and wet our appetites. And would you please satisfy your people with your steadfast love that we would rejoice and be glad all our days through the wilderness, looking back with thanksgiving and looking forward in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.